Hello, space lovers, lawyers, and listeners. Welcome back to Pod Ad Astra, advancing the analysis, development, and adoption of human rights across outer space for the benefit of humanity. My name is Allison Decker, and I'm a legal advisor to Just Ad Astra, a nonprofit pioneer project looking to bring human rights to the stars. For our 12th episode, we are delighted to welcome Mr. Hunter Williams, a technology development manager at Honeybee Robotics, a company that was acquired by Blue Origin in January of 2022, but is probably best known for its work developing and building Martian excavators for NASA. Hunter, welcome to Pod at Astra. We look forward to hearing from you about how the private space industry, including Honeybee and other companies, are working towards establishing a permanent human presence in space. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk today. So, as most of our listeners know, it is a very exciting time for the private space industry. And there are so many companies working on new technology to get more and more humans into space. So, can you start off by telling us a little bit more about what Honeybee does and how that ties in with Blue Origin's vision of creating a true lunar city? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Honeybee was the first to touch ice on Mars. We were the first to touch the inside of a Mars rock. And uh, we are going to have two attempts in the next year to be the first to touch ice on the moon as well. So. If you, uh, you know, if, if if you're excited about those kind of things, then we're um, we're excited to talk to you. And I think that uh, I think the Blue Origin was so <laughs> a, a big a big part of why we think uh, we were was because of that pedigree, and because of what we're trying to do with space resource utilization. Um, Honeybee's motto is "Touch life, mind the sky." So we do a lot of astrobiology work. We look for life through the solar system. And at the same time, we look for uh, ways that we can responsibly and sustainably use space resources. So Blue Origin's motto is for the benefit of the Earth, right? They are looking at trying to put a million people onto the surface of the moon and have uh, millions of people working in space for the benefit of Earth. What And what does that mean exactly? Well, there are a lot of uh, industries such as mining and energy production that could be moved off of off of the Earth's surface, uh, and Jeff Bezos includes uh, heavy heavy industry manufacturing in that list as well. So we uh, we are looking at quite a bit of the technology that could help jumpstart some of these efforts to uh, make life better on Earth, uh, lower pollution, lower environmental impact through uh, through space technology development. And and I just thinking of that, there's also the fact that we we are somewhat running out of, or at least running out of, easily obtainable um, certain types of elements and and products and and materials that we actually need for our daily life and existence on Earth. So it does make sense to to sort of be looking out to see where we could find these these products and these materials in the future. Um, so I know many people seem to associate Blue Origin solely with with space tourism, but that's really only a small portion of what Blue is doing. I know I'm really excited about the development of New Glenn, which is a rocket designed to take humans to the moon and their recent joint bid for a second NASA lunar lander contract. Is, is Honeybee part of that new bid? We are. They, there was a recent press release about how Honeybee is going to be helping out with that. Um, 
Honeybee is, I, I talked about my part of Honeybee. There's a, there, there are two sites uh, for Honeybee. One is here in Altadena, California. We do a lot of the planetary surface uh, excavation and sampling type of activities. We also have a site in Colorado that does high reliability mechanisms uh, that worked on things like the uh, the Orion capsule that has built uh, quite a few uh, components for satellite arrays. Um, we we're kind we're kind of all over the place through the through the solar system, but we are in particular our uh, our. Uh, Colorado office is very active in, in this, this new lunar lander bid. And uh, yeah, we're really excited about New Glenn as well. There are, there are a lot of possibilities with the, the payload mass and volume that New Glenn will, will allow for. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a sweet spot, to be honest, for doing things like what we want to do on the lunar surface. Like <clears throat> human crew activity is exciting. We're so stoked about the Artemis program. We're part of the Artemis program, but in particular, uh, my passions lie with a lot of the robotic exploration and uh, and uh, preparing the way for humans to live on the lunar surface. And the the New Glenn, in particular, be valuable for that just because of its uh, its potential for high number of launch per year and its. Uh, <clears throat> It's uh, it's kind of sweet spot for for the amount of mass that it can take down to the surface. And I, I if I'm correct, one of the things Honeybee is working on, or at least your side of Honeybee is working on, is is also sort of how to harvest ice and use regolith on the moon. Is that is that do I have that right? Oh yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> Honeybee. Honeybee is building the drill for the Viper and Prime One missions, the the Trident drill that is going to be the first to try to find ice on the lunar surface. But we are not stopping at just finding ice. We, we of course, think that ground truthing is going to be the, the way that we get terrestrial companies excited about mining ice and turning it into propellant at the lunar surface. Ground truthing being a, you know, a mining industry term for actually going down and sampling on site, not relying on, uh, on orbital data. But that is not the only technology that Honeybee's worked on for the uh, for propellant production related to lunar ice. We've worked we've worked on a number of different technologies for uh, extracting the ice, for digging up any kind of uh, overburden, meaning uh, dry material that is on top of the ice, and we've worked on technologies that could work on quite a few different uh, different types of ice as well. So the the the, the industry at large doesn't really know exactly how much ice is at the lunar poles or uh, what form it's in. So it could be little tiny granules that are that are dusting the surface. It could be cementing uh, grains of regolith so that when you try to dig into it, it's harder than concrete. <laughs> it, it, it could be... Like yeah, a, we, we won't know until we really get down there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So the orbital data that we have indicates that it's there, but not what form it could be in. So Honeybee's developed technologies that could work in any of these. The current um, current consensus in the industry is that, uh, specifically in the, in, the, in the science side of the industry, is that it's very low percentage. Like it may be as, 
as low percentage as nighttime in the Sahara Desert when uh, when the the dew starts to collect. That might be <laughs> that might be about as as wet as it gets in some spots. But we don't really know. Like I've been to I've been to conferences over the last few years where people have talked specifically about ice, and I've been to several conferences where one person releases a new paper and it completely revolutionizes everything everyone talks about. Uh, from thinking that it's uh, nothing to then another year thinking that it's maybe five to ten uh, percent, and then another year thinking it's 0.5 percent, and it's just patchy. Uh, it's not all over in the in in the uh, craters, these permanently shadowed regions. So it's a very exciting time for both the science and for the space resource utilization community because we're both working together to figure out how much is there, what can we really do with it. And the good thing is every step of the way is um, it's going to be valuable for science as well as for space resources, but it's also going to be sustainably done. There's no way to fly an armada of to the lunar surface and, and release a thousand tankers to go crash into craters and, and just rip up all the ice and take it home and, and there would be no more ice on the moon. It's, <laughs> it, it can't be done. <laughs> At least, at least gonna... not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, maybe in the far future, that kind of technology will exist. But the good thing is, is by the time that technology exists, there's a very good chance that we will have already moved on to the asteroid belt where there is definitely a lot of ice, where there is a ton of material available. And so we can, we can gently and gradually take small <laughs> amounts of propellant ice from the moon and then go where there's no danger of ever using it up. Right. That makes sense. So I want to take a little bit of a step back because one of the things I always find fascinating and somewhat inspiring is how everyone's path to the space industry is drastically <laughs> different. Um, and sure. I know yours was not a straight path or even your first career. Can you kind of walk us through how you went from teaching English in Japan to becoming a, a NASA research fellow? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I was originally a, a linguist, right? I was very interested in languages and I traveled to a few different places around the world. Um, I taught in Japan, I taught in China. And when I was, when I was in Japan, uh, second time around, I, I was working for a company. I had written their, their textbooks and also I was teaching for the company. And I kind of finished up that, that uh, textbook. And so I had a lot of free time. So, I was just reading in bed. I was reading a lot of uh, science fiction at that time. And I was reading The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by uh, Robert Heinlein. And the exciting thing about that book is it's not super far future sci-fi. It's not like Star Trek, which Star Trek is exciting too. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> it's going to be yeah. a long time before we get to that Star Trek. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The, uh, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress has you know, the kind of technology that could have been developed if if Apollo levels of funding and interest had been maintained. So very, it was just very inspiring to me. I felt like I had this moment of like, this is what I should be doing with my life. Because don't get me wrong, I love teaching. I love seeing the light come on in people's eyes when they learn a new concept. Um, but the, I, I, I kind of thought about the 
the course of human history and what has what are the things that have made the biggest positive changes and a lot of times it has been technology developments you know development of things like aqueducts to things like uh you know modern agriculture um it's it's something that i wanted to be a part of so it just so happened that at that time when i was having this personal revolution there was also the first stirrings of a revolution within nasa where the the people who were kind of considered a, a interesting fringe of people who were <laughs> who were trying to do uh, space resource utilization were suddenly getting a lot more attention and they were uh, becoming more organized and they were laying the foundation actually for things like the colorado school of mines um, space resources degree program so i went i didn't know about that when i first started going back to engineering school but when i when i graduated i saw companies like honeybee doing this kind of dual use stuff so the technology that could be used for astrobiology which nasa was very obviously interested in at the time but that also could be used for mining in the future and um yeah so i i tried to get a job in the industry and um, yeah, it wasn't quite ready yet. So I, I worked at, worked at Lockheed for a little while. Uh, and then eventually the program at Colorado School of Mines started and I was the, I was the first graduate from their master's program. Uh, it was extraordinarily exciting for me. Um, yeah. you know, quit my job at Lockheed, moved up there. My boss at Lockheed was so happy for me. He was like, this is such a great opportunity, you know, go, go with God. Right. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, yeah, it's it's totally changed the course of my life. I I've been really fortunate to to come at this right at the right time and to have uh, people who've been working on this for 10, 15 years uh, lay the groundwork so that we could actually do this now. Yeah, and I just I always find it fascinating that when people because so many people think like if you if you didn't start out on this path for a space career it's always too late for you and and I feel like oh. that is definitely not the not not true <laughs> and not the case for you you're a prime example of someone coming to the space industry from a completely different place and from a completely different background. Absolutely, and you know I as far as my 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 background background goes, I grew up in a town of. 2000 people in Georgia, you know, I grew up in a very impoverished area. Most of the, most of the people I grew up with never even had dental care. You know, I, I grew up around, everybody had messed up teeth where I grew up, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, the, a lot of times when people talk about who has, who has access to space, who is, who's able to, um, to be a part of this. Um, yeah, the, the idea is that it's people who have just, been, been born into privilege and have been able to um, have been able to uh, stay in school and get their PhDs and it's just not the case people can people can change careers people can come from a very wide variety of backgrounds there's a big push right now where people realize like people in industry leaders have realized that diversity is actually very important um, for for this industry it's, it's important for uh, our success because the this is not traditional aerospace anymore this is this is a a whole new paradigm and so we need people who have a lot of different ways of thinking to to be a part of it because that kind of lateral thinking that kind of creative and unusual uh thinking and and skill set 
being brought to a project is what can can make the biggest difference in a in a field that is so where so much of it is brand new. Right. I, I feel like almost every space company right now or aerospace company really has to be thinking outside of the box because everything is new. It's, it's everything we're doing is new. It hasn't been done before or it hasn't been done in this in this sort of new way that we're trying to make things more sustainable and more accessible. Um, so we owe so much of what we sort of take for granted in our modern lives to space technology, but a lot of the conversations sort of in that public domain about space resource utilization still times kind of come across to many as pure science fiction. I know we talked a little bit about that, like what's possible now, what's possible in the future, but we really aren't that far out from, from actual, you know, mining in space or, 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 or resource extraction in space, because we, we expect to be back on the moon creating permanent installations and just, you know, a few years. <laughs> um, you know, so it was like the future is now. Mm -hmm. um, and I know we also talked about this a little bit, um, but for for me and many others, you know, we're, we're very concerned about how we're going to sort of preserve space for future generations because humans don't necessarily have a good track record of doing that here on earth. Um, you know, and I actually presented at the IEC uh, 2022 about preserving unspoiled space for future generations. And in, you know, working on that topic, one of the hypotheticals that that sort of came up a lot was about using the ice from these craters of eternal darkness on the moon. And I, I know you just mentioned it briefly a couple minutes ago. This could be very easily accessible source of water on the lunar surface. So very useful for permanent civilizations or even just for creating the fuel that we need to, to come back or go up farther out. But there's also just something sort of unique scientifically. And I think for a lot of people, almost spiritually about the fact that some of these craters have never seen the light of the sun. It, it's sort of this unique and unusual concept so, to begin with. Um, you know, so how are Honeybee and other private space companies really thinking about balancing these different interests of what we need to do to be commercially successful while at the same time sort of preserving these really scientifically and somewhat spiritually unique facets of space? Great question. And it's it's really, I, I, I love the fact that you say it's scientifically and spiritually unique because that is exactly how I feel about it. And it's how much of the, uh, the community feels about it as well within uh, space resources and lunar science. When we talk about the the permanently shadowed regions, when we talk about the uh, persistently lit regions, sometimes we even use like very romantic sounding names like the peaks of eternal light to discuss these things, right? Um, so the thing that I think that we are not doing a good job of is engaging with the public to show them exactly how we are talking about this and how concerned with it we are. This is in the room. A lot of times are people who are using uh, colonial imagery and, um, and history as allegory for what we are trying to do. And that is neither correct nor appropriate. This is not going to mirror our colonial past. And it, it can't. It's like as in it simply cannot from a technical perspective we actually have to be mining in very similar ways to how uh, early indigenous peoples used uh, artesian mines. So 
going, you know, panning for gold in rivers, digging only a, a, a few meters deep into the surface to find some of these, uh, these ore veins and leaving everything underneath untouched. Um, it's how we have to do it. Um, I think one of the, the more interesting things is talking about, for example, what you just said of, you know, the importance of leaving some undisturbed and how, how do we make sure we're not contaminating things. There was <laughs> um, yesterday and over the last few days, actually, um, on a very prominent uh, lunar science and space resources message board, there was a huge debate about um, how how many craters we should go to, where we should be doing this, what's even possible. And one of the things that was striking, I was thinking about you know, how I was going to do this interview with you um, as this debate was going on. And I was, like, I was just thinking the public has no idea that we are talking about this right now. Um, but yeah, so I appreciate podcasts like this one that are, you know, bringing the message that, you know, it is important. It is not something that we're brushing aside. It is, it is certainly not a thing where we're just trying to redo colonialism, but on the moon or on Mars. Um, so to be more concrete about this, the, the ability to harvest ice is, it has not yet been proven on the moon. The first thing we're going to do is go and uh, figure out what even is on the surface. Do a little bit, poke a few holes into the surface, and see see what's in there. Then we will send a couple. You're going to do the science. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do the science. Exactly. <laughs> then we're going to send a few rovers um, with a few uh, specialized drills on them for harvesting. So we've worked on something called the planetary volatile extractor. It's a coring drill with a heater inside. So we're gonna dig into the surface, heat it, heat up the, uh, the ice and, um, and harvest it that way, just a, a few grams at a time, okay? Now, whenever we start to, whenever we have kind of proven that this technology works, and this is, you know, we're talking a few years into the future at this point, then the next step would be to maybe make a little fleet of these vehicles, they will be, um, recharged using power from the sun uh, that gets beamed into the craters very likely or tether like either they'll have a, a power box or they'll have a power beaming system uh, both have been proposed by NASA but the power origination will be very likely solar panels so these things will be like electric cars running around on the surface taking a little bit of ice here a little bit of ice there and eventually gathering up enough to so that you could refuel one rocket one time. Uh, if we look at a crater like Shackleton, uh, with that kind of um, slow, steady growth, even if we continue on a, a geometric growth pattern where it's not, it just, it doesn't end at one rocket, it grows to like 10 rockets and then to 100 rockets a year, right? We would still take over a hundred years with that same growth pattern that we currently have uh, to use up all the ice that we think is in Shackleton. That's one crater out of hundreds. And another thing is that's just ice that we think is at the surface. Uh, some people like uh, astronaut Harrison Jack Schmidt think that what may happen is you may have a impact against the surface and then 
ice kind of creeps to to uh, to frost the surface, and then another impact in another area causes regolith dirt to uh, to cover up that ice, and then more ice comes, and so you get kind of like a layer cake of dirt and ice, right? Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, if that's how it really is out there, then it could be hundreds of years even within one single crater. And by that time, we've gone out to the asteroid belt. So we can see a slow, steady progression here that will be a that will treat the moon uh, respectfully, that will have buy-in from all nations because this is something that one nation won't do alone, and that will always have the goal of not disturbing all of the craters in the area, not sucking the moon dry, but rather using it as a cradle uh, until we can go off until the rest of the until the rest of the uh, the solar system. It's it is it gets to sound a little science fictiony at that point, but that's also you know a few decades in the future. In the in the near term, the the mass available within the rockets that will be going to the moon and the technology that's ready right now to within the next two decades will never use up these craters. And I think that's a good point where you're talking about like this is sort of testing ground in some ways to figure out what will work in different environments that are just, well, completely alien to what we experience <laughs> on Earth. Um, and I, I think NASA has also pointed that out a lot of times when people are like, why are you going to the moon, back to the moon instead of onto Mars directly? And it's it's partially because we need to figure out what's going to work. And obviously different environments between the moon and Mars, but both of them are so different from Earth that we really need to figure out what will work. And it's better to sort of use the moon almost as a, a testing part before we, we move on. Yes. Um, now, in, in sort of thinking about this idea about preserving for future generations, I really love the language that comes from um, UNESCO's this is a long name, Declaration on the Responsibilities of the Present Generations Towards Future Generations. But in it, it states that the fate of future generations depends to a great extent on decisions and actions taken today. And there's also a similar concept in the Outer Space Treaty that space exploration is to be conducted so as to avoid harmful contamination. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about how there is a dialogue about like, how do we access these resources? How do we, how do we explore? How do we test without sort of creating harmful contamination? Um, and, and I think that's a big concern. Like what, what are we doing now to make sure that we don't negatively impact space exploration in the future or the ability for future generations to really enjoy and have the same opportunities to explore space uh, that we currently have? That's a great question. So one of the things that I want you to imagine is, imagine you have a, uh, a well of water, you know, just a, a, sm a small well, it's your own private water drinking well. Would you want to park your car right above that well and funnel the exhaust into the well um, and then drink the water from it? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> right. Even, even if it doesn't really fully contaminate the water, it's just kind of a weird idea of fumigating your well with your car exhaust. So the, uh, so even having the perception of of contamination important, right? As in, we we need to we need to be working on uh, making sure that even laymen can see that we are not just 
going crazy and spilling the equivalent of oil all over the all over the moon. Now the good thing is it's fairly straightforward to prevent. We are all uh, like all companies right now that are looking at lunar surface activities are getting away from things like monopropellants. So some of the, like a hydrazine and some of the other um, very toxic propellants that have been used in the past that are necessary sometimes, like when you want to talk about, you know, guidance navigation control related thrusters, things like that, then um, that's the kind of propellant you may, you may need to use, but you would try to minimize that. You would not use it for your whole rocket. You would not use it for your lander. Instead, you would want to use uh, things that could be harvested on site and that could therefore be a part of an ecosystem, even if, even when you do um, have exhaust near the, uh, near these regions. So Blue Origin has, has looked at using a, uh, a hydrogen oxygen mix for their, uh, their rocket propellant. And what's great about that is when hydrogen and oxygen uh, mix, when they come back together, exhaust is water. So we would be putting water back onto the surface and then harvesting it again. And it would, it would not be polluting in any way, right? So that is one very exciting really thing. That I hadn't doing. thought about that. You, you'd be harvesting and then basically putting it back. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, uh, and even bringing, you know, bringing some from earth as well. So like people talk of, many people have talked about how this ice may form over billions of years. No one yet knows the mechanism for formation. Well, the good news is one, we will be keeping plenty of these, like the vast majority of these craters will be kept pristine, never touched by humans. A smaller subsection will be investigated by scientists and then an even smaller subsection will be used for resources. And those that are used for resources will actually be replenished by this uh, uh, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen propellant. Interesting. Um, another thing that sort of comes up frequently in, in the space dialogue, and I, I think especially with, with um, groups that are particularly concerned about how we are going to be using space in the future um, is sort of the shared cultural heritage that humanity has with space. And there are many indigenous and non-Western societies where, for example, the moon is still a very important part of their belief system and traditions. And I know in a lot of Western cultures, we've sort of moved away from, from our sort of connection of nature in a lot of our beliefs and a lot of our traditions and a lot of our daily lives. But I, I know, for example, that you've sort of talked previously um, uh, about being sort of good stewards to the land. And you, you spoke a little bit about this at the first intertribal space conference in November of 2022, right? Yes, yes. We, we were actually the corporate sponsors for that. Um, we paid for, the, paid for the conference center and everything. Honeybee was very excited to be a part because we we actually see indigenous peoples and the, and the, the techniques that they have developed uh, in many different parts of the world for how to use resources without um, completely destroying them, how to uh, maintain a population without spreading out of control. Uh, you know, when you, when you look at people who have managed to live in an area for you know, a, th a thousand years and for the wildlife population 
or you know thousands of years even for the wildlife population to be healthy um, for the for the 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 flora and fauna both to be uh, in a thriving ecosystem that includes those people right it should make everyone think okay they've got something really good going on we need to learn how to do this if we want to survive in space in the same way so the only way to learn how to do that is not simply by going to these groups and saying, okay, give us all your technology and then we'll see you later. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, that we can't have an acquisitive relationship with, um, with indigenous peoples. We, we have to have a relationship of um, partnership, of, um, of not trying to, to own everything and, and, uh, and call you know, it, they talk a lot in academia these days about, um, you know, the colonial mindset, and we we can't approach with that. So yeah, we're trying. Honeybee's actively trying to partner with with different tribes, both for um, terrestrial science work and for for analog sites. As in, there are many sites that are great for testing space uh, drills, for example, uh, heat flow probes. Uh, on this land, and this the 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 point of this is to um, to learn how to learn how to better do this in space. But also, it gives us a certain amount of um, data on climate change for Earth. So, like if you if you dig deep into the the ice caps, right, then you can figure out how much they are receding. Is is one kind of very clear example of how this this is good for discovering climate change. And so, you know, when we talk to some of our uh, tribal partners about this, they get on board because they understand that um, the the Western world is in many ways driven by data over everything. And so, finding out exactly how these uh, these natural places are are being affected by climate change is really important for convincing people that something needs to happen. So uh, anyway, the, <laughs> there's a lot there, but we are some kind of concrete ways that we're working together beyond just the uh, beyond test sites and developing technology for the earth together. We're also looking at things like indigenous construction techniques. So if you look at some of the, uh, the cliffside dwellings, pueblo dwellings, there's a lot of uh, really fascinating architecture, but also uh, engineering that went into these where they did not have things like rebar. They did not have the, the access to the kind of materials to make concrete that uh, other places had. So they used Native, Amer Na Native materials to, uh, to create multiple parts of these dwellings. So it's like different types of mud processed in different ways. To, uh, to create different parts of the dwelling. And it's fascinating because it works and it can stand the test of time. They have, you can find images of these that have been around for you know, hundreds to who knows how long uh, of years. And we think that's going to be necessary on the lunar surface where there will be no, no concrete mixes. There will be, <laughs> there may be rebar one day in the future, but uh, even if you were able to harvest the iron and and aluminum and titanium from the, the lunar regolith, it's, it's very difficult to process and you're not gonna have the kind of alloys that we use on earth. So 
it, it you know when the question gets asked of like okay how much could we just use regolith but use some of these indigenous building techniques to to create habitat habitats that do not require a ton of material brought from earth and that's the kind of mindset that we were trying to um, bring with us whenever we're talking to some of our indigenous partners that's fascinating. It's really interesting to think about like going, you know, going to sort of subject matter experts on things that we no longer think are, are necessarily valuable in our modern lives, but are, are tried and true techniques that have survived, survived throughout, through, through eons and are really going to be valuable for, for when we go into space. And it's sort of wild to think of sort of these, these, these sort of no longer use types of technology that are going to become incredibly useful in sort of the sci-fi future. It's an interesting dynamic, those sort of two, two different extremes. Absolutely. Um, the, real yeah. quick, one, one really good uh, example of that, even terrestrially, is fire management. Um, there was a long time, decades, where the, the Forest Service and the U.S. government kind of conspired against Native Americans where the uh, several different tribes, it was not just one tribe, had done like uh, traditional burns, for forced management through controlled burns, and um, they had been prevented from doing so. And the reason they were prevented from doing so was in the name of science, but ultimately was just racism, because the science wasn't there. The, the people who were doing the, the forest science didn't actually have a very good understanding of the, um, the ecosystem that they were, they were looking at. And so after decades of these, uh, these people being prevented from doing controlled burns, what do we have now? We have massive forest fires every single year in California. And uh, this, this is something where they've even started talking to some of the tribes that were prevented in the past. Uh, you know, an example is the, uh, the Tongva people here in Los Angeles. Um, they're talking to these tribes and saying, hey, actually, all that stuff we, we were forcing you guys not to do in the past, we've just realized it was really important for the ecosystem. And so uh, can you start doing that again, maybe, please? <laughs> and, and so... That's a terrestrial example, but it's that kind of thing where there was, there is no reason necessarily, like no logical, no technical reason for, uh, the, for people in Western society to have turned their nose up at the indigenous techniques other than racism. So if we can pull back some of our uh, socialization, some of the way that we have been taught to think of uh, indigenous technology and indigenous methods, um, and we can see the value for what is there, then we can have a, a much more uh, realistic conversation about where those uh, techniques and, and technologies could fit into the future. Yeah. Um, so I think it's worth mentioning that sometimes when, when we are discussing these issues about accessing space resources, we, we hear people describe the moon and Mars and other celestial bodies as sort of dead rocks, ripe for exploitation. But I think it's important to remember that that view isn't a universal one. So, um, you know, here on Earth, we actually protect natural cultural heritage sites, which we sometimes refer to as associative cultural landscapes, as well as 
natural features because of their exceptional geological interest and natural beauty. And we do this not because of human man manipulation of these areas or the biological life forms that might exist there, but because of this sort of inherent intrinsic value that they have. Any thoughts on how this, this concept of sort of the intrinsic value of, of just natural formation sort of relates to space? That's a great question. Uh... Yes, I think when, when we see pictures of the moon or Mars, so often these pictures are from overhead and they flatten out the landscape. It's very similar to taking a, a satellite image of Everest versus actually climbing Everest is going to be a very different experience and a very different view, like a, like a different physical view. So one of the things that I think is going to happen really quickly when humans go back to the moon, and especially when humans go to Mars, is they're going to experience this landscape and be awestruck by it. That it is, there will be images, that especially, I love thinking about this with Mars because, you know, we were on... Uh, all of the modern Mars rovers, and so we do have we do get to see some of these images that <laughs> come back. Kind of jealous of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fascinating and and breathtaking and and um, you know I don't know what we should have a word for it of like make you feel small ing you know <laughs> uh, um, when you see something like Olympus Mons right or if you you know any of the even not we're not near Olympus Mons, but like looking at like um, some of the the places where we are in these valleys, um, the with with very low amounts of water and and wind erosion happening in these landforms, you get these enormous uh, mountains and landforms that are truly otherworldly. So I think that much much like how um, the stories from all of our past have a lot more nature in them because of how um, driven by nature our lives were in all of our distant past, um, it's going to be that way again. The, the excitement that I feel for the people that will, that will live on the moon and eventually on Mars even if I'm not one of them, is uh, is very intense because I think that just being there is going to create a new kind of society. Um, you you will have to get along with your peers because you're in a very tight enclosed place, and everybody's going to have a job. If if one person stops working, then it's a very large burden on everyone else. So you have to take care of each other psychologically as well. Um, when you look at indigenous peoples who live in uh, very cold climates and spend a lot of the year um, indoors, snowed in, you know, um, uh, some of the things that come up in a lot of these cultures is, uh, you know, the ability to get along with each other being very important. Um, I think well, I think all societies that actually live in space will integrate that kind of getting along, and it's not Pollyanna. It's not a it's not a kumbaya kind of thing that I'm talking about here. It is necessary for survival. So um, the the 
majority of people, like we, one of the things that we have to recognize as space practitioners is that most people don't really think about what we're doing. As in the average Joe is ba maybe vaguely aware of Artemis. Um, but as we go on, some of the things that we do, some of the changes that we see culturally uh, is something that could benefit those people as well as the technological things that we're going to be uh, bringing back as well. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. We're going to have to form sort of new sort of ways of thinking about community and and creating sort of almost families basically out of out of your coworkers or 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 fellow groups of people that you are living with and exploring with because you are going to have to have so much trust with each other. Yeah, and I know, I know that you asked about landforms and I brought it back to people. <laughs> but <laughs> But um, you know there are there are many groups that are legally trying to put in uh, preservation. There are many groups that are um, kind of discussing what is what is good and, and what is bad as far as how how much impact we have. Uh, and and that's all. Those are good things. These are things that we we as a community are talking about and continue to need to talk about. But the reason I bring it back to people is that I th I think that it will be. Um, ultimately a culturally driven uh, change. The, the people who get there, especially people who go to Mars, are going to be around eight months away from, at a bare minimum, they'll be around eight months away from any uh, resupply or interaction with Earth. And many times of the year, it'll be more than eight months away. And that's with a rocket that's ready to go that instant. As you saw with SLS, sometimes getting a rocket together and ready to go can take a uh, you know long time, maybe years. So when we you know, when we talk about these things, um, I do think it is important to talk about the people that will be going, the kind of people that will be selected, but also the kind of culture that they will develop because they're going to be the ones who are actively preserving the uh, the spaces, actively choosing not to. Um, not to destroy the natural beauty that they find, you know? Yeah. And that, that kind of segues into another question I have. So as, as you know, I, I come to space from a legal background. So I am very fascinated by how we will build new, new government systems as we get farther and farther away from Earth. And right now, the few international space laws we have in place are really Earth-centric. And they also don't really line up with the increased privatization of space that we are we're currently seeing. So one of the things I've sort of been mulling over in my head is sort of the creation of, of kind of like regional space organizations, sort of akin to regional fish management organizations that we have on Earth, but with a little bit of that sort of environmental protection protocol from the Antarctic Treaty thrown in. So you're sort of talking about how, how, how the people who are going to be living there are going to be in part sort of shaping what we do for the future and shaping our roles and sort of coming up with new systems of preservation. What, what role do you think private companies should be sort of playing in shaping these sort of new regulations or, or guidelines for, for space? That's a great question and, and a very interesting one. <laughs> so one of the things that is just true at NASA is that um, astronauts, when they come back, a lot of times they don't just retire into uh, into glory, right? They stay actively engaged at NASA, and they, um, 
you know, they, they become administrators like we have now, they become, uh, they become high ranking officials. And so in many ways, astronauts long after they have, uh, they have come back to earth, continue to, to shape our space program. So an interesting question is what happens when all these astronauts are private astronauts, right? Are they, are they going to have the same perspective as a, uh, national hero who has come back and um, is celebrated with, um, you know, at visitor centers like NASA Kennedy and Johnson, where you can actually pay to have lunch with an astronaut, things like that. You know what I mean? Like the, uh, the treatment of a, the treatment of and place for a citizen astronaut is an interesting thing to consider. Um, and as things get more and more privatized, um, one of the things that, people have to think about privatization is that NASA has always used contractors to do its work, right? The, you know, these, these big rockets that we talk about that are NASA rockets are built by contractors under NASA. So what privatization means very often is really it's just taking the money gun, so to speak, and pointing it slightly off of NASA and more towards um, the customer, the, or the private entity, sorry, not the customer, the private entity, and uh, allowing them to do the management of the project as well. So NASA becomes an institution where they control where the money goes and they control the big mission concepts and the ideas. In many ways, this frees up NASA to, to do the more interesting creative work of mission planning. Um, and the private industries end up being more lean because they, the kind of contracts that they work on are those where NASA says, do this for you know, $100 million or a billion dollars or whatever. And any, any amount of money that they spend over that comes out of their own pocket. Uh, the, the firm fixed price method of, of contracting as, uh, as people talk about. So the, uh, the interesting thing there is privatization is never going to fully drive the conversation, but it may have effects that we are not talking about or expecting right now. Um, they're, they're still all going to rely on NASA money for the very near term. Um, NASA is still going to be doing all the mission planning in the very near term, but we are right at the brink of being in a place where private companies can do things like set up an electrical grid, set up a propellant station, right? And, and have a, a sale to NASA or to other companies, but ultimately those companies would still be paid by NASA as well. So you trace the money back, it still will generally go back to NASA, um, but it will be happening off earth. So it's a, it's a very exciting thing because it is extending this, this uh, model of sales that we had originally with like uh, telecom companies and uh, satellite manufacturers that originally was mostly government oriented, but then slowly became commercial until it became so commercial that regular people were paying telecom companies for cell phones and for, you know, satellite radio and internet and stuff like that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that happened over many decades, right? The invention the invention of the satellite to the first cell phone was quite a few decades and um, we'll get there eventually. But I think that the, um, 
the fear of privatization or the, con the concern with privatization in some ways is, is uh, misfounded. It should simply be something that uh, we are planning for right now, that we are thinking about in a far future uh, kind of standpoint, because NASA is not going anywhere in the near, in the near term. Yes, and, and also I think it's important to point out that um, in other countries, uh, there has been less sort of privatization or there is more focus still on, on government-controlled missions entirely or oh, yeah. on... Uh, so, so it is sort of a, an interesting kind of dynamic because when we think of it, there, the range of privatization across the globe in the space industry is very different from country to country. And so that's also something to keep in mind. Uh, one last question before we go. How do you see the work you are doing now sort of shaping space for future generations? Great question. Um, we, see, we see this in, in a few different ways. One of the ways is when we go and we talk to people uh, like at universities, when we go to talk to students at conferences, um, we are very, uh, very adamant about uh, letting them know how, how much we value uh, what, what they are capable of and how much we want them to be a part of what we're doing. Honeybee is a very young company as far as the, uh, even the management. Uh, we're, we're uh, generally under 40, and a lot of our engineers are fresh out. And Honeybee is one of the few companies out there where where somebody who's who's only worked for the company for a few years can get to be part of a flight project. Uh, can can even eventually lead a flight project. That's something that if you worked at one of the big four aerospace companies, you might be waiting around for decades before you're able to lead a flight project. The reason we're able to do that is because this new NASA paradigm of uh, super low cost, high risk payloads where NASA's like, here's, here's a few million, build this payload. You're not getting any more money. So make, you know, make sure it's cheap and it works and it's ready in time. And, um, and so the risk posture is different. The, the ability to accept uh, a little bit more risk if something fails, well, you know, that's just the price of doing business in this new way. And so NASA seems to be really enjoying this way of doing things. Um, this way of sparking small businesses and new companies to to get involved in ways they never have before, and so um, so yeah, we're certainly NASA setting the tone. He is a is a big part of it. Um, we're we're the ones who are actually doing the work, and so when we talk about the future generations, what we're doing is we're training up people with that mindset of the ability to do it for. To, to do new work for fast and to, to get it there and uh, to try out, you know, try out new things and, and uh, expand what we think is possible. Because for decades, people thought that uh, space resource utilization was completely impossible, total pipe dream, forget about it, um, and we're proving them wrong. So we hope that this, uh, this continued success that we're demonstrating is, uh, is inspirational to those other kind of those other people who who have a dream of living in space and are kind of falling somewhere in between it's not possible period and Star Trek <laughs> that's, a, that's a big big space <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right um, well I think that's all the time we have right now so thank you again Hunter for talking with us about your unique path to space and the ways in which the private space industry can be a good steward and a partner in preserving space resources for future generations.
Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a great conversation. For our curious listeners out there eager to learn more about human rights issues in outer space, you can reach out to us via the project's Twitter handle, at Just Ad Astra. For our future episodes, Pod Ad Astra will seek to engage with leading experts across the fields of international space law, human rights, and space policy, including the environment, gender equality, space heritage, justice and liberty, humanities, and cybersecurity. Thanks again for joining us today, and we look forward to having you tune in again on the next episode of Pod Ad Astra.